Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Bryony Doyle in conversation with Ronnie Scott. Echolalia, Bryony Doyle's skillful second novel, concerns a family on the verge of disintegration, skipping elegantly between chapters set before and after a traumatic event that changes the family irrevocably, it explores not only the aftermath of the event in question, but also its impetus. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings bookseller, Mari Madison. Welcome everyone. What a great night to meet online for an event with these wonderful people. So on behalf of Readings and Penguin Random House, I'd like to welcome you all tonight to an In Conversation with Bryony Doyle and Ronnie Scott. We're going to be celebrating Bryony's new book, Echolalia. Did I say that correctly? Echolalia? Echolalia. Or Echolalia. There it is. There it is. There it is in person. On behalf of all of us tonight, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm meeting on the lands of peoples of the Kulin Nations, as is Ronnie and probably many of you here in Melbourne. Uh, Bryony's meeting is from the Eora Nations, Gadigal land in particular. I would like to pay our respects to elders past, present and to come from all these lands across Australia. It always has been, always will be Aboriginal land, land that was never ceded and land we are very lucky to be sharing. So on that notice of storytelling, I'm going to pass you over to Ronnie. He's going to talk to Bryony about her new novel, Echolalia. This is the first online event. It's echoing through the uh, ethernet. Is that a thing? You know, who even knows? But I'm going to pass on to Ronnie now. Thank you. Hi, Bryony. How are you going? Good. How are you, Ronnie? Yes, I'm very well. Um, and I'm so happy to be here talking to you about this, um, about this wonderful book. It is such a good book. If you have read Bryony's first two books, um, and, and many of you probably have, 2016's The Island Will Sink and 2017's Adult Fantasy One Year Later, um, one thing that you will know from your reading experience is that each of these books could only really have been written by the one, the one mind. Um, obviously, Bryony's mind, um, the one mind, it's, it's a mind that is piercing, a mind that's sceptical, philosophical. It's attentive to human hopes and desires and strengths and foibles and accidents, human accidents. It's shockingly fluid, really, in its ability and its willingness to draw connections between phenomena and ideas and events. And again, human events, human actions that are usually seen to be separate, even deeply separate. Both of those books are immensely rewarding um, and immensely entertaining and sophisticated books. And if you haven't read them, you should check them out as well. And once you have read them, uh, or if you've read them, the second thing that you will take away from them is that you will have absolutely no idea what to expect from the third book by Bryony Doyle. They are so different from each other. The Island Will Sink is this, this you know, sometimes very abstract, sometimes very plot-driven almost science fiction dystopic book about narrative expectations and film structure. And there's a love story in there and it, it, and it dismantles plot as it goes along. And it is so different tonally, especially 
from adult fantasy, which is a mix of memoir and cultural criticism and sometimes journalism about getting to the age of 30 and realizing that there are these stories in place um, that stop you from being able to see the reality of your situation and potentially from being a member of a society that can progress, not just for you as an individual, but for other people as well. It's a really fascinating book of nonfiction that just feels so different. And now we have Echolalia, which we'll talk about tonight. And so I'm not going to summarize the plot, but it's different again. It's about a, a woman named Emma Cormack, who has found herself in a life which in some ways is is a dream life that is stable, that is based in the family, that is ostensibly based in romance, that potentially has a lot of um, a lot of goodness to it and a lot of promise. And yet it's a book that is full of so much dread. It, it, it unfolds in, in these very kind of unexpected ways, which I think we'll tease out. It's, it's again, totally so different from both adult fantasy and the island will sink. And I, I guess I wanted to start, Bryony, by asking you where it came from. What was the seed of Echolalia? Mm. Thanks, Ronnie, for the, all of that pre of my previous work, though. That was an amazing thing to hear. It's always wonderful to hear someone speak your work back to you so eloquently. Um, Echolalia, originally when I conceived of it, I was thinking a lot more about kind of messing with genre, which is what I was doing with um, The Island Will Sink, and I was thinking a lot about um, the, the, the at the time, very popular and still, I guess, very popular domestic thriller and, you know, all of the problems that I saw with it and all of the tropes that I saw in it that I thought were, like, worth messing with and worth disturbing and, um, yeah, thinking about that notion that in, like, in a domestic thriller generally it feels like there's... Um, a, 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 an element, a kind of a monster that you can kill and then everything goes back to this perfect domesticity or even like a radical version of alternative domesticity, but nevertheless like the actual um, underlying um, notion of the family and, and the family as underpinned by various, um, you know, I don't know, social trends, narratives, all of that kind of stuff actually isn't troubled at all. It's just kind of like a bad guy got in and then, we can get rid of that element and then we can get back to uh, things being um, beautiful again and full of promise again. And I, I kind of wanted, I, I was interested in in writing something that messed with that trope. And, I, and when I originally conceived of it, I thought it would be more of a kind of a thriller novel. But as I started writing it, I got much more engaged with the characters and the characters began to drive the narrative in ways that is not, it's a bit more literary than what I was originally imagining. I had also read an article, which I, I never found again, but before when I like started writing the kind of, you know, outline of what would become Echolalia, I'd read an article about a young woman in my, in the town where I grew up who um, killed uh, suffocated one of her children and she had three children under the age of five at home and it was kind of an uh, elaborate crime and and I just remember thinking like you know how did she have this time and how is she so unsupported and feeling really like there, there was so much of a story there that wasn't being told um, and so we'd be kind of coming interested in that and you know the ways that we construct motherhood and all of that kind of stuff and thinking about okay so how can we build that into this sort of narrative. Yeah, right. So, so there was this, this sense. What was is it that there was a sense of of domesticity that you wanted to set up and then rupture, and then rather than restoring, you wanted to keep kind of rupturing it. And and if so, what was that sense of the domestic? Yeah, good question. I suppose it's like 
it's not that I wanted to set something up that seemed perfect and then rupture it. I wanted it to be imperfect and monstrous a priori, which is not to say that I, I think that, you know, all families are imperfect and monstrous, although there is a sense in Australia, particularly the way that we narrate the idea of the family that deserves things um, and the way that they deserve those things um, and uh, the responsibilities they don't have toward their various community because they're taking care of their own um, that I do think is quite monstrous. And so I did want to kind of make sure that that was a big part of the novel of like what's sinister in the novel and also just the various characters and how they kind of assimilate or reject that narrative. And, um, you know, so Emma, for instance, She's, she's a young mother um, and a young person in a family that's really wealthy. She's kind of fallen into something that on, on the surface seems like kind of a cool thing to fall into or, or a lucky thing to fall into. Um, she's with this family that are a well-known, wealthy, affluent family in this town. And, but she, she's beginning to feel distrust for the narrative they build around themselves and the combination of that distrust and external forces, including the pressure that she's under to perform as a mother when her men- mental health is deteriorating and the things that she's becoming attuned to um, externally, you know, the environmental factors, you know, the way that the family kind of shirks responsibility for the various things, interventions that they're making in the community um, at the community's expense for the betterment of that family. And she's just... Um, probably not quite equipped yet to deal with that disjuncture between the story she's having to tell about herself and that, that this family are telling about themselves and what she's perceiving and what she's feeling. She kind of can't deal with it. And so it becomes this like real kind of cognitive distress for her. Right. So at the, so one of the ways in which the book is structured um, is, is into a before and an after. Um, and, and I should say that we, we begin with the after and the after is, uh, is the sight of a of a dead baby um, on the first couple of pages. So we know that that is coming in the narrative. And then we go back to page three, we start to see kind of the details of Emma's life. Um, and she uh, she's married to a, a property developer um, in this fictional town called Shorehaven, um, and she's a new mother. And and that's true. She she already has a sense that something is is wrong, and possibly she doesn't quite know what that what that wrongness is would that be be fair to say yeah she doesn't know how to articulate it and also she's she's constantly being told that there's absolutely nothing wrong you know that if anything's wrong it's her um and we all know that like being gaslit is the best way to get more and more feel more and more um under pressure and more and more isolated so there's no way for her to actually articulate like something is actually wrong here it's not just me failing um yeah so she and so she's internalizing that sort of feeling of failure but unable to it doesn't rectify the things that she's noticing and the things that she's experiencing that are just generally to do with her mental health and her um, being under pressure of looking after these three kids and looking after the needs of her husband who's kind of, you know, has like childish needs as well um, in this family. Um, So what what would you, how would you describe this family in this town? What, What sort of positional role do they have? Because... They, so <laughs> the Cormacs are a family of, of um, real estate property developers. Um, they have money. They've been in the town for a while. They're kind of like old Shorehaven. Um, they're, uh, Shorehaven is a town that's really obsessed with its colonial history, but not in the sense of being critical of it at all, like really lionising and romanticising its colonial history. Um, they're obsessed with, you know, uh, the, the gold rush 
the gold rush epic narrative kind of that sort of story of like um you know taking a place that was nothing and making it into a bustling metropolis that's that's very much they're very engaged with that narrative um and very much dismissive of any other any counter narrative including of course you know um the theft and colonization of that land in 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 the sense that it was not no one's land and they've built you know they've they've got a house around uh the lake the lake is a man made uh, lake it's from the uh, you know dammed from all the springs in the in the town or in the the land that became the town and um, the Cormacs are a family who see themselves as very much instrumental in the creation of this great town um, yeah and so they you know they sent their kids to a private school they're all you know football and you know backyard barbecues but also very affluent but also would definitely think of themselves as having worked for everything that they've got and you know battlers in all these various ways you know they've very much brought all of that kind of um, Australian rhetoric about the good family and also they see their family as a project that is essentially, especially Pat, the sort of matriarch, the mother-in-law to Emma, they see their family as a project that is for, you know, for the good of everyone. Like if their family is doing well, then, you know, who wouldn't be happy about that? Who who doesn't that benefit because they're good people essentially? Um, and it's, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that I really wanted in writing Echolalia was that there was like moments of where you're just like squirming and hating the character, but also some moments where you are really sympathetic to the character because they believe the things that they believe, you know. So I wanted to sort of balance those those elements there. You know, they don't think they don't think the comics don't think that there's anything wrong with them. You know, um, well, there's a scene where um, you know there's some houses that they that Bob Cormack, the um, Emma's husband's father, had built for working families, and they're all filled with asbestos. And there's a kind of a an expose type thing in the local paper. And you know, Bob's, and Bob's like, well, you know, we built things that working people could afford. So you know, what do they expect, sort of? Thing? You know, so they they very much not involved in in thinking through or taking responsibility for things that they have done from small things to larger things. And this um, tragedy or this crime or whatever forces them to do that in this, in this really um, jarring way for them. Forces them to do what? To, 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 to analyse responsibility, to think about, like, who's to blame for what, especially um, the matriarch Pat. So she's like very much the the center of these narratives about this family and how great they are and how they're all just pitching in to do the hard work together. And then toward the end of her life, so like Ronnie said, it's it's before and after, and that's a fifteen year period. And in the after period, you know those those narratives are really destabilized for her. The, the idea that you know she's not responsible for any of the ills of the world and that things were all better in the good old days, and you know those things become quite destabilized for her. Um, and and I'm hoping that readers see that not it's not a journey because you kind of see someone at one point and then you see them 15 years later, but that that the readers piece together the ways that that has that she has taken on this idea of okay maybe things are a little bit more collective even though she still blames Emma for um, you know certain things that have happened to her family. I'm trying not to give too, too many spoilers. <laughs> while I like I know, it's really it's a really interesting book to talk about plot wise because you do shuttle back and forth between things that are I mean they're, they're not reveals necessarily right but they're things that develop in such an organic way sometimes because you read a little bit of like a, a flash of the future mm. um, and I think it feels quite telescopic as well even though it's only a 15 year mm. period or, or that it's kind of shuttling back and forth between I think because the, the the sort of the future period like has some elements which are not really like 
um, the world that we live in today, and also because they are, as a family, they're so involved in this in the past and oh. so thinking about the past in so many other ways. It feels like it covers quite a lot more territory. Oh. Um, and there's, yeah. Anyway, it's 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 interesting. Um, I wondered about about Pat um, and about Bob, which is the older generation in this in this family. Um, and also about about um, Emma's husband Robert, who are who are big parts of the of the story. Yes, that you feel such sympathy for them. Um, they are they're not at the at the, fore, the the very front of the story in the same way as Emma um, and one of her children. But um, but they feel quite quite round and full. And I wondered if that was something that you had to. Um, I don't know had to to negotiate with those characters because they are they they. You, they have a more critical stance in the, or a more criticized stance in the novel as well. Mm. I like this phrase, negotiate with the character. It's kind of like you're sitting down at the table and being like, all right, Pat, what do you think about this? Um, I feel like I know Pat. I feel like I've met Pat lots and lots of times. So I actually found her to be a character who I could write. Like I just, it, it just felt really easy to inhabit her. The hardest, um, Bob doesn't have his own focalised chapter, so the chapters are focalised through various different characters and Pat has a couple of chapters that are focalised through her. Bob doesn't have any that are focalised through him, so it was very much observing and observing him from other characters' perspectives, which I found kind of easy to do as well because, like, I know lots of white boomer, affluent white boomer men from country towns. I've met them, you know, and I've observed them, you know, so I don't, I, getting inside that might have been a little bit more difficult. Um, Robert was hard, like... And of the two younger male characters, Robert was the harder of, of the two, I think, um, so Robert and Shane. Um, and, yeah, I guess the negotiating of it for me was that, you know, I guess the Roberts that I've known I don't sympathise with really and it was important to me that uh, that there was a point of sympathy, you know, he's kind of a, he's like... He's like a, a popular a popular kid in school. He's destined for all these things. He's under a bit of pressure in various ways, but he also becomes humbled to an extent. But then also his privilege just kind of beats through. It's like you can't beat him down. Um, so to, yeah, to kind of like uh, design that narrative in a way that doesn't aggravate, I suppose. And I didn't want to, that was the other big thing I think, Ronnie, is I didn't really want, I really didn't want to punish any individual character. You know, I didn't want it to, and that's like part of that thing of messing with some of these narrative structures, you know, like I didn't want any straight up redemptions and I didn't want any straight up punishments, no no justice or, you know, no serving in that way. So I wanted those moments in the after section of both misery and levity for all of those characters. And so that that was something that was, you know, how do I negotiate that with my own particular relationship to people like this? And, and of course, that's just, you know, as you know, like that's sitting down with your characters and being with them, you know, as long as it takes for you to, to feel like you know something about them that's beautiful or something about them that's sad or, you know, whatever it is, whatever that point of resonance is between you and your character. Yeah, it must, it must have been so interesting to have this this story, which is because it's structured as a tragedy, as you say. You know, a tragedy is kind of about justice, or it's about fate and outcomes and consequences. Right. But you're saying that you didn't want to meet that out to individual characters. You wanted yeah. them to be part of a web of connections and story. Exactly, and, and that's the collective responsibility. You know, that's that like instead of every instead of there being one monster and one way that justice is served it's like everyone needs to at somehow even if they don't acknowledge that they have this collective responsibility they're bearing it in some way um emma 
who's my favorite character and she's the lead character. Um, she's such an interesting protagonist because in some ways she's interesting as a female protagonist, um, but she's just interesting as a protagonist protagonist because she, I can't think about, I can't think of why I like her. Um, I can't, <laughs> I, 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 um, and I, and there's no particular reason to like or dislike her. She's just, she's just a very complicated character who changes a lot throughout the book as well. And I wondered, so you, you said that this newspaper article kind of inspired you to want to imagine a particular story. Um, you've said that domestic thrillers, which often have female protagonists, it was one of your jumping off points as well. How did you sort of stitch those together and what kinds of questions did you want to ask through Emma? Yeah, good question. So I guess that the article from what I remember didn't reveal an awful lot about um, the the woman who had committed this crime. And a lot of the articles, particularly if they're, um, a lot of the coverage, news coverage, I should say, of, of infanticides, typically if they are um, non-white uh, perpetrators, they'll reveal lots about the background in the in the newspaper articles. So you know, I, I wanted I wanted to write a character who you couldn't be like, um, well, uh, she did this because of her social position or because of how she's I don't know um, underprivileged socially or whatever. Like I, that's, I definitely didn't want to do that. So then you have a number of you know questions that to me um, are equally interesting questions about, okay, well, what what is going on, you know, that will push someone to these kind of um, points and extremes of, of violence and of, um, yeah, depression and, and inability to connect and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so I did a lot of work with the character of Emma, you know, before she's, she's in the book, you know, in her focus, a lot of first-person work and thinking about that. And, you know, Emma is, she's not, she's not a particularly smart, um, go-getting, she doesn't know what she wants when she's a child. And this idea that women should either know what they want or they should just want what society tells them they should want, I find that really troublesome, you know. Like why do we think that, I mean, I find that troublesome across genders. Like why do we think that a 17-year-old will know what they want and be able to go out there and fight for it, you know. We, we don't know, we, as a nation, we don't know who we are you know, we don't know who we are in our communities. We don't see each other properly in relation to each other. So, like, how how can we expect a 17 or 18-year-old to kind of provide um, a counter-narrative to the one that's that's being sold to them so hard? So that was where Emma came from. And Emma, to me, is this, you know, she's her, um, she's, she's in this private school, but she's not there because she's academically inclined. She's not, she's there because her parents... Um, value education, but they're not wealthy. You know, it's not a status symbol. They're hoping that their children will stay in Shorehaven um, because they have every generation have moved around in various places, that kind of like um, middle class moving for opportunity um, type migration. Um, and they want her, her, her dad particularly wants her to join his um, small you know, building architecture firm in the town and she just doesn't want to do it. But she can't say, like, her little sister, her little sister's like, oh, because I want to be an actor, you know, and everyone's like, okay, you know, if you if you project that kind of extreme, I know what I'm doing, I'm building a dream kind of energy, then, yeah, okay, you can make some decisions for yourself. But if you can't do that, then, you, you know, you're being pushed through these other sorts of avenues. And I think with, with Emma it's like it's not that she's passive, She's just not worked things out and she's taking time to work things out. And in that time, she's 
under such immense stress and kind of as she's finding her, um, I don't know, her relationship to the world and how she feels about certain things, it's kind of like too late she's in it. You know, she's implicated in ways that she can't kind of handle or um, process. Right. So the solution to the problems that that Emma has and that the other characters have is not to be uniquely heroic or uniquely no. intelligent or anything like that. No. Yeah. It's yeah. It's it is. It's so interesting. And I I, I also I guess part of the research you did was to look up different infantis instances of infanticide. Um, and there are there are sort of after sections where we see that someone someone else in the book is going through these um, these pieces of research as well, and they're kind of being conveyed to us. Um, did you want to read some of that? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. This is the first time I've read from this book to people, so it's so nice. I'm seeing all your friendly faces, and thank you so much for coming along, you guys. Um, yeah, so this is one of the after sections, and these are all, like, based, yeah, based on research of, of actual infanticides. And it's, and it's interesting how... Um, obsessed the media is and how they kind of treat these kind of cases in this really salacious way. Um, Okay, so after a small town in America, green and blue horizon, mountains, mist, an outdoor mall, a smokestack, a setting to disturb, mise-en-scene, children's discount studio portraits pinned into a pine tree, a pretty place, simple, these places are always women, small towns welcoming you with hospitality, a home-cooked meal, a, a shy smile, Or does the smile mean something else? Some towns are women who never arrived, who worked and worked and only had a dirty dress to wear. Women with torn fingernails and secrets. Women with men across the state line. Women, where did they go wrong? The women who are cities are always whores, but this small town is a woman described in a true crime paperback as the sister who never graduated from high school, who works for Weyerhaeuser or Georgia Pacific and no longer notices the acrid smell. The woman from this town becomes famous. She says a stranger shot her children. She drives to the hospital in the car he tried to steal. Three blood-soaked children. He shot them. The little girl is already dead. She doesn't want the others to suffer. She's sad for the little girl, but death is better than suffering. She knows the boy will walk again. She has amazing hair. She goes on TV. She becomes famous. The media loves a woman with a past. The scene caused at the high school dance, the reputation that never quite receded, the lunchtime spent reading in the library, Not many friends. Women are detached, reserved, cool, loose at parties, withdrawn, until they're not. There are always shots of women smiling, smiling women getting on with their lives when they should not. In the reenactment, the woman laughs. She bumps her arm as she climbs back into the car. That hurt more than she cracks a joke. Unthinkable. She's friendly. She wants us to like her. How could she? The famous woman wears a shocking blue maternity dress, a fresh blowout, like a movie star. They lead her from the courthouse. She says, I don't know, what is there to say? Life plus 50 years. She showed no emotion, the reporter reports. Always the smile in freeze frame, the sinister music. How could she smile? A black and white photograph and she's glowing, heavily pregnant somehow in a bow peep dress and cuffs like a Halloween costume. Everybody says you can't replace children, but you can replace the effect that they give you. They give you love. They give you stability, a reason to live and a reason to be happy. That's gone. They took it from me. But children are so easy to conceive. The prosecutors say, we saved that baby's life. Adopted straight after birth, the baby grows up to watch Farrah Fawcett play her mother in a made-for-TV movie, watches it with her boyfriend, the child actor in the witness box, a bow in her hair, a shaking finger pointing. Where's mummy? There she is. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent, and people clapping in their um in, in their, their boxes. Their, their boxes. Um, yeah, thank you so much. 
I, uh, I mean, especially from the, from that section and also from your last couple of answers, you can see the the really obvious links to the first couple of books. Um, you know, the, the the kind of the descriptions and of and interrogations of and insights into media and filmed media, um, and uh, and and this sense of uh, of uh, of inquiry into especially kind of young women's narratives and how they get kind of distorted or changed wow. through time um, and the the kind of effort that that people undertake to overcome them and to get through them. Wow. Um, I sort of I, I have one more question maybe before we throw to um, to the audience. So if you have questions, could you put them in the chat? Um, there are so many great ideas in this book, so it'll be fun to keep talking about it. Um, my question is about the tone, because I think that's the thing that separates, that makes the three books to me feel so different. Um, you know, and, and I guess there are specific tonal choices that you must make when you're writing something that is more realist, that is more of a, you know, that, it, that is writing into an Australian realist tradition as well as the domestic thriller. Um, and yet it also to me feels really feverish and surreal in, in some ways. And um, it, does, it doesn't always feel like a realist novel. I wondered how you manage those decisions because you obviously can write in all of these different ways. It kind of been autom automatic. Yeah. Like I never thought as a, like as a younger writer, I never thought that I would write an Australian realist novel. Like I just would like a novel about an Australian family. I was like in the country, like, no, I was not interested in doing that. So it was very bizarre to me to be like, uh, this is what you're doing. Like, this is very much in this tradition. This is, this is what's happening here. Um, tonally. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I, I wish that I could answer that question satisfactorily, Ronnie. I don't think it was any like um, decision that I that I made. I just kind of like when I started building this novel, I started from after you know I had the plot in my mind, and then I spent time with the characters, and those those characters kind of dictated the tone. And I guess the surreal sort of fevery stuff. I guess that's me. <laughs> I suppose that's like me not being able to help myself or something, you know. I, but I do think you know. Australia, oh, this is going to be kind of, maybe this is a silly and over-the-top thing to say, but Australia does feel like a, a surreal, feverish, anxious, abstract place so much of the time, right? Um, and I think, like, those moments where you can use the authorial voice to, to kind of, like, show that atmosphere of place, and I'm always into doing that in my writing and I like writing that does that, that builds atmosphere of place and builds atmosphere of context in, in ways that are really um, gripping and disturbing variously. So I suppose, like, that's a sensibility that I'm, I bring, bring with me to this, like, realist space. Yeah, because there's definitely moments, like I think the moment with Shane and Robbie on the beach and, like, there's a few moments where, and the scene of the horse, you know, there's moments where it's very, like, strobe lighty in my mind. When I try and picture the scene, it feels like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you. That was a great answer. Great. <laughs> it's a very good question. <laughs> Half question. Um, awesome. Thank you. Thanks, um, Ronnie. <laughs> Can I just check this? Is this a question from, it's from, from Caitlin. Um, Hello, amazing conversation, says Caitlin. Um, I was wondering, did the idea come to you straight away after you read the article or was it something that lingered with you for a while um, before the seeds of the book came to you? Ah, good question. Caitlin, Caitlin, one of my former students. Hi, I can't see you, but I, I recognize your name. Um, uh, I, it, sat, it sat with me for a while. I sat with this, I sat with the idea for this book longer 
than longer than the writing. I don't know, almost as, as long as the writing. So I, I like thought of the plot, thought of the idea, um, wrote a bunch of notes about it and then sat on it for a while um, before the story became. I, I also think like the before and after structure, I often have like weird structural moments with books where I'm not, I'm, I know what I'm writing, but I don't know how it's going to work until I'm like, oh, the structure. And I always was like, you know, it's going to be before and after, but I kind of imagined it being a bit more like Deliverance, if anyone's read Deliverance, where it's like, you know, a date, a date, a date. So it's like three, it's like, you know, the day that they're getting ready to go on the camping trip, like the day or the week of the camping trip, and then, you know, uh, several months later. So in my mind that was what I was starting to write and then, I ended up suddenly being like, oh, no, wait, it's got to move back and forth quite quickly. So, yeah, so I think in answer to that, I know that that's a little bit of a deviation, Caitlin, but, I mean, the story itself was in my head or, like, major plot points were in my head, but um, structurally and aesthetically it came together much, much more slowly, yeah, and I was sitting with it and and playing with it and experimenting with it for ages. Um, How much do you write it between sort of a, a research stage and a and a writing stage? So much, mm. like a lot. How much do you write, Ronnie? Can I ask you that as well? I'm always curious about other writers as what they do. Yeah, sure. I no, I'm I'm incredibly wasteful and yeah. not not efficient. There's a there's a ton of a ton of ton of ton of writing that goes into a little bit of writing. But I know that not everyone's like that. Um yeah. some people are efficient. So it's interesting that you're that you're not either. Yeah, no, I'm super wasteful. But I don't think of it as wasteful. I don't frame it as wasteful. But yeah, like I do, I do a lot of lots and lots and lots of character studies, lots and lots and lots of descriptions. And also just weird notebooks that I don't even like because I, I recently moved, I picked up a notebook and was like looking at whether I should throw it out because it wasn't one of my official spiral bound notebooks. <laughs> but um I just like picked it up and looked at it and it it must have been from quite a while ago, but it just had like all these key scenes in it that I just kind of drafted with a blue pen. But then I obviously hadn't like it wasn't filed properly or anything. Like it was just like a little notebook that would have fit in my dog walking pack. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's all this, like there's there's the reams of what you're doing on in Microsoft Word that you can quantify, but then there's all of those like walking along the creek and then being like, well, oh, it's good. There's going to be a scene with this, you know, so there's all of that writing as well. And I think like it's one of the nicest in this book, it was a little grim, but in general, in books, it's one of the nicest times of writing. I think um, when you are able to, when you're just thinking the characters, like the characters are in your head and you're sudden, you're always struck with things that they would do, whether or not that's going to turn up in the book. You're just like, oh, you know, Shane would definitely do this. Like, and so it's just like, Shane does this. And then, you know, put that to the side. Will it become a scene? Uh, who knows? But it's, it's important that they, you know, come alive in your brain, even when that's deeply unpleasant sometimes yeah that's I think that's a good feeling as well it's sort of it happens for me at the end like you know wow. to the end where you where you can have thoughts like a character would have thoughts or it comes oh. to you in the middle of the night seemingly automatically but it's because you've done all the work to build the character before that that's interesting because that happens to me like before the end of the first draft so like yeah it comes to me kind of in the in the middle bit and then when it's like when you've when you've um finish the first draft and you're reworking it like that stuff hardly ever happens again it's like I feel like I'm now just working with the content that's already written and I don't have other places for the characters to go so I think there was one point when I was rewriting this and rewriting this and rewriting this when I can't remember who suggested it or whether I thought of it where I was like maybe we need another section and I remember thinking yeah maybe that's what needs to happen but they're just being like (laughs) you know like I don't know like I can't I couldn't 
I couldn't take the characters to another place. Like I couldn't imagine, and I, or maybe like the possibilities were too vast. It's like once you've decided what's in the book, like the idea of like the characters doing more stuff, like following, I think, it, yeah, it was following one of the characters to, to a, a short prison stint and I was just like, you know, we could do that or we could follow this character to the States where they, you know, go to university or we could, you know, like it was just too many things that they could be doing. So then it was like not, once they were not in interaction with each other, I, I wasn't getting those kind of like moments of, mm. oh, they do that. Yeah. Um, there's a question from Justin. Um, so Justin asks, a lot of the reviews have picked up some of the elements of the horror genre. Has that surprised you? Um, were you conscious of that when you were writing? Um, and Justin's thinking particularly of the swan at the beginning, which to me is so reminiscent of the beginning of a horror film. I, I, I know, is this the line where there's a there's a water bird who raises its wing and it's like it's it looks like blood underneath because that's the line that sticks out to me as well? Yeah, like lacerations. And actually, it's like the underneath of swan wings do look like this. One of like the things that I did a lot of was look at swans when I was, when I was writing this book. But yes, totally, Justin. Um, I'm so I'm... I'm surprised that people are picking up on it so much, like that it's been such a theme of the reviews, but it's. It, I was thinking about it a lot. You know, I was thinking about, like, what is horror? How can we bring out the horrific in the everyday? Like how can, and, and what are, in, specifically in novels more than in, like, movies or whatever, like what are the most horrific sentences and lines and, you know, paragraphs where you're just like, oh, filled with this kind of, yeah, just chilling. And also even gothic horror and gothic romance and stuff like that, thinking about that kind of stuff. And, you know, there is a little bit of like Emma wandering around in her palatial, um, you know, house that's sort of meant to be a little bit Bram Stokery or, you know. So I was thinking about those elements. But, yeah, like as it became more and more an Australian realist novel, um, that stuff I felt like I felt like it was kind of getting backgrounded to what was happening between the characters. But I really like that um, that reviewers are picking up on it. I really like that they're having that experience. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, maybe they're primed to pick it up because they experience, like you're you're tapping into the horror that people feel. Anyway. I really hope so. Tapping into the horror that people feel in their daily lives is just like, I feel like I would want <laughs> to write that on my goals section at the bottom of my resume. <laughs> I was fascinated with what you said, Bryony, before about the sort of the horror that is Australia almost in a way or the potential odd dissonance of Australia. And would you say that there's something in an Australian realist novel that does turn into the horror genre quite easily? For me it did, I think. Yeah, I mean, like any any sort of Wake and Fright or many other... Yeah, and um, those are the, the, like, Wake and Fright, oh, I love Wake and Fright so much. Um, I love those Australian novels that do pick up on that horror. Um I, I don't know, some people don't love them for various reasons of, you know, this kind of cultural cringe or or our own shame or something like that, but I, I really love them. Um, I, I there's, there's, you know, so many great Australian novels and there's so much in between, but the thing that I was really not interested in doing was being nostalgic or romantic or, or you know, rose-coloured glasses about Australia um, and particularly about the relationship between um rural or not really rural regional centers and the city um 
uh, the, those relationships that are to do with, you know, either the flow of capital or with aspiration or with kind of snobbish distaste or any of that kind of stuff. I definitely wasn't interested in romanticising colonisation in the way that Shorehaven and lots of towns like Shorehaven um, do, you know, our proud gold rush past or whatever. To me, that is horrific. Like that's, that is really horrific. Um, yeah, and there's aspects of the ways that we deal with each other that I, I, I do think really lend themselves to horror. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know that everyone would feel that way. And I suspect that there's pressure, probably not um, pressure, uh, I don't know, I don't know, I probably don't have enough of a, a sweeping knowledge of Australian literature to be able to say there was pressure then and there's not now. But certainly I think that there has been a popularity for a certain kind of portraiture of Australia and that that portraiture is like, you know, lovable larrikins, having laconic conversations, you know, and being really, you know, and there is there's elements of that in in the, some of the characters in the book, but that's not the, the point that I'm making. Yeah. There was one last question that has come through. Okay. Um, I was interested in the scene when Arthur raises her hand to her. Um, so one of the devices in the in the book is yeah. that Emma Emma is teaching um is is teaching her second child Arthur Auslan because he's speech delayed and she read somewhere that that can help with speech delay and there is ambiguity what's a, a productive ambiguity about because she says oh she privately loves this idea of a shared language between them um, and there's a productive ambiguity around whether or not uh, he's learning Auslan and and saying things to her and they have a private language or if she's really just projecting the motives for the things that she does onto this idea of protecting her second child, who, to be fair, you know, she does need to protect him. He he is he is in a, a very ableist environment. Um, there's not a lot of space being made for him in the family and she's not being paranoid about that. That is a, an objective reality of, of the book. However, it's not... It, it, it's not clear within the book and it's deliberately unclear in the book whether or not he is speaking to her at this really young age or whether she's just like, oh, thank God I'm doing the right thing by you because that's really kind of her her reasoning um, for everything. Yeah. Well, not for everything. It's not her reasoning for everything, but it's certainly a really important motivator in the things that she does. Yeah. Right. Just because it's real doesn't mean that she's seeing the correct signs of that. Exactly. And, and she's very much, and this was sort of a horror thing too, you know, I was thinking about omens, you know, and how we read omens a lot and we read, you know, points of synchronicity. Um, and as a natural sceptic, you know, I, I tend to be like, oh, that's like just not a real thing. But once you get into a certain headspace, what's the difference if it's if it's real or not real? You're interpreting it, you're reading it. So that's very much where that scene is focalised from Emma's perspective and that's she she sees that she's not she's not even 100% sure you know but it, it kind of doesn't matter yeah and I think that you know if you watch a horror movie especially those 1970s horror movies you know they do such great camera work with that sort of stuff and put the audience in that position where they'll like just have a like lingering shot of I don't know a bird or like some rippling grass or something and you're just like <gasps> what does it mean and like of course it you know, it means everything and nothing. It's mm. just being positioned in a specific kind of way. Speaking of, of Arthur, do you want to maybe close us off by um, talking about the word echolalia? 
Sure. So echolalia like is is a way that lots of kids, not just um, kids with developmental disabilities, learn language, and it's, it can be um, really mild in the form of re- repeating words um, back um, as a kind of a way to get towards uh, comprehension or as a way to sort of rehearse it, um, or it can be totally compulsive, you know, and can become a real barrier to communication. It's a, it's, I think it's a, as a word, like sonically, it's really, really beautiful. Um, but it, it became a kind of a motif for the novel because the novel is like um, interested in these unconscious repetitions. You know, how are we unconsciously repeating the things that our parents did or our grandparents did? And how are we unconsciously repeating the scripts um, that, you know, create our existence without even really like thinking through the content of what we're saying. Um, yeah. So I kind of am using it in, in that way. And that, uh, that becomes, um, uh, what a kind of an artist, like one of the characters is an artist and she plays with this idea as well in her work. So yeah. Yeah. Um, that's that word, that title, which is either loved or hated. I feel like it's a real divider. <laughs> it's an interesting title because it makes you immediately think, what does it mean? And then it makes you think, why? Uh, why why uh, a word that is both complex and beautiful? And it makes you suspect that there is something to unpack behind it. So I think it's a good title. Thanks. Ronnie's on the yay side. I'm glad yay to hear <laughs> All right. Actually, sorry, and there's one more question that has just turned up in the chat. Um, and it's from Ali. Uh, it's the setting of Echolalia reminds me of the work of J.G. Ballard um, in terms of, of the feverish tone. Um, can you tell us about the setting of the diminishing lake and how it might reflect the characters, especially Emma? Oh, what a question. Thanks, Ali. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I love Ballard. So if there's unconscious Ballard in my prose, it's, it's just stuck there from forever, maybe. But also, like, I, I love one of the things I love in Ballard is those like um, uh, real landscapes that are also surreal and metaphorical, right? Um, you know, crystal forest, drought, all of the high rise even where the like actual like physical setting of where they are is allegorical as well. Um, but like this fictionalized town, there is a town, um, some of you in this room know the town that I'm of which I'm speaking of, but like lots of people have said, oh, um, you know, I feel like I'm from Shorehaven and it's, they're not actually from this particular town, but this particular town did have a lake in the middle that was um, as described in the book and it was where the fancy people lived. They lived around the lake and it was like when the lake dried up. It just seemed like such a, like that metaphor just seemed like how could I leave it alone? It just is so perfect to have this, you know, all these fancy houses set around this lake that should be beautiful and in times past was you know home of the Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games or whatever you know and it's like this point of national pride and then it just becomes this like paddock essentially and in in my fictional rendition of it it's like a paddock for longer and the paddock is um grimmer uh than I think that the paddock was in um the place that I based it on but yeah I I love those kind of allegorical settings and it it was a really good device for Emma you know because Emma's constantly she's situated in the domestic she's looking out over her um balcony veranda patio thing into this allegory of what she feels very much in her heart like this drying up of what she's capable of and of the future that she like I don't know if she even hoped for it, but that she thought was a given. Yeah. Thanks, Ali. <laughs> that must have been irresistible. It was irresistible. 
irresistible. Like you just can't, you just can't. I mean, in some ways, I think the book came as much from that as from any other interest. Like, how, how what can we do with this lake? Like, this lake must speak. <laughs> um, Mari. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Bryony, for despite all the situations, doing your third book launch really with us as well. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, I'd love to thank everyone for being here tonight. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you so much, Bryony. Thank you for including us in this really lovely conversation. Thank you to all the amazing questions and your amazing answers. And on behalf of Penguin Random House and of Readings, thank you to everyone just for spending this lovely hour of the evening with us, celebrating this new and really exciting work from an author we love to support. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website. We'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our monthly free print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.